please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 9, verses 1 through 9. Hard words from the weeping prophet for God's people as they um, have not shown integrity, but instead have been characterized by deceit this time in the history of uh, Judah. Jeremiah 9, verses 1 through 9. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression, and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them, for what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Amen. Please turn with me now to Acts 4. I'm going to read from chapter 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verse 11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear 
came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you have been following along with our evening sermon series on the book of Joshua. And uh, back in March, we covered the very tragic history of Achan. Uh, So Joshua chapters 1 through 6, everything's going great for Israel. There's the crossing of the Jordan River. They celebrate the first Passover in uh, the land of Canaan, where they finally arrived. Um, They defeat Jericho. So Israel's relationship with the Lord is very healthy. They've been obedient. They've been doing everything that God told them to do. do. It's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, you come to chapter 7 of Joshua, and it says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. So you may remember the contents of the city of Jericho were supposed to be devoted, right, either to destruction um, or to the tabernacle treasury, one or the other. But there was one man named Achan, who it says, uh, took some of those things for himself, uh, secretly. And so what was happening is what should have been devoted to God, Achan devoted basically to himself instead. And you can read in that chapter the very deadly consequences for the people and for Achan and his family. Now, uh, many commentators, and F.F. Uh, F. Bruce is prominent among them, uh, suggest that there's an important parallel between the history of Ananias and Sapphira that we just read and the history of Achan back in Joshua 7. In fact, Luke may have um, had Joshua 7, verse 1 in mind when he wrote Acts 5, verse 2, because there's a relatively uncommon Greek word that appears um, in both verses. If you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Luke knew, Achan took some of the devoted things, while Ananias kept back some of the proceeds of the sale. It's the same word, took, kept back, same Greek word. And we'll, we'll dig in a little bit more into this parallel as we go today. But first, I want to give you an outline for this morning. Today, we're going to look at first a Christ-like generosity. That's chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Second will be a selfish hypocrisy. That's verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5. And then third is the church's purity, verses 3 to 11. So a Christ-like generosity a selfish hypocrisy, and the church's purity. Um, in many ways, the end of chapter 4 is, is kind of a review. It's echoing what Luke said about the Christian community in Jerusalem back at the end of chapter 2, as the people there were devoting themselves, you remember, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and the apostles' message was being accompanied by these amazing miracles 
And it said there in chapter 2, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so I don't want to simply uh, repeat everything I said back then, but there are a few things to think about as we encounter the same themes again two chapters later. Uh, the first thing is that it's, it's significant that this uh, culture of commonality, as I called it back in chapter 2, uh, was not something that was limited to a brief time in the church. It persisted. It continued uh, to characterize the Christian community, uh, despite the tremendous growth of the church on the one hand, the explosion of new people coming in, and then also, on the other hand, despite the emerging uh, persecution of the church, the opposition from the Jerusalem religious leaders and the arrest of Peter and John. That fellowship uh, or, or sharing, not only of spiritual things, but also of physical things as an expression of that, that didn't go away as the church grew. It wasn't just a, a, a small group type thing. The Lord adds to their number at the end of chapter 2. He keeps adding to their number in chapter 4. And still, that culture of commonality, that fellowship of sharing, um, persists. And that arrest of Peter and John in chapter 4 doesn't slow it down. Uh, so why is that? Well, it's because, verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. See, the, the physical sharing of things was rooted, was flowing from an underlying spiritual oneness that characterized these Christians. In Philippians uh, chapter 2, Apostle Paul encourages that church. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and that's, that's critical. Remember, there's that one Spirit we all participate in, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Pentecost. Any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy, then, he says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's a reality of our participation in the one spirit, but now Paul is saying this is something you need to, to do, to cultivate, actively pursue as the church. Um, so when we confess the Nicene Creed, it's the longer one, right? Uh, at the end of it, we say that we believe in what? We say, we, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. And we don't, that's not something we should gloss over. It's a crucial article of our faith regarding the church. We should not miss the significance of confessing that biblical truth that the church is one. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, Ephesians 4, 6. And so in Philippians 2, what is Paul saying to the church there? He's saying, you and I need to live as though that is really true. To live out that basic oneness of the church that we confess as an article of faith. And it, indeed, it is a matter of faith um, because the church as we encounter it in daily life in the world um, doesn't always look that way, right? Many denominations, many different takes on doctrine, church splits. Um, so often, we contradict in our lives and choices what we say that we believe about the church, 
what God has revealed is the core fundamental nature of the church, that the church is one. There are not many churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one church of the Lord Jesus Christ in all times and places, which is what we're saying when we say it's Catholic. Not Roman Catholic, but it's the church everywhere throughout time and space. And there's only one of them. Christ has just one bride. Well, as often as the church contradicts that in her life, here in Acts, we have a window into something different. To God's people living in harmony with their identity, with what God says is true about them. That fundamental reality of what makes the church the church. One heart and soul, it says they shared. And that spiritual unity of the church finds expression not just in words, not just in feelings. It's not merely a sentimental reality. It gets expressed in action. It gets expressed in what people actually get up in the morning and go out and do with their stuff that they own. It's practical reality. No one, it says, said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now, that doesn't mean that the reality of personal ownership uh, disappeared, as though the gospel um, somehow abolished private property. In fact, um, we're going to see in a few verses Peter teaching the opposite. And if that were true, that the gospel abolished private property, then this whole scene would be much less meaningful because people wouldn't have any, any choice, essentially. What's significant here is that no one said mine about their stuff, about the stuff that they really did own. It was, it was theirs, but they didn't say mine and hold on to it tightly. No one said of any of the things that did belong to him that those things were his own. In other words, they'd be, they would be thinking, yes, this belongs to me, but I'm not going to count it as my own, as though it's there for my personal happiness. That's not what these things are here for. These things are mine, but I'm going to treat them as though they are not mine. With the control, the stewardship that God has entrusted to me of these things, I'm going to use that stewardship uh, as though those things do not belong to me. As far as I'm concerned... All these things are at the disposal of others, at the disposal of whoever needs the help that God has uniquely equipped me to be able to give. Remember how the Lord Jesus, Philippians 2, did not selfishly hold on. It's a good translation of the word there. He did not selfishly hold on to um, his heavenly glory. He emptied himself, it says, by taking the form of a servant. And that, that very basic, open-handed, self-giving attitude of the church that you see here flows from the open-handed, self-giving of Jesus, who, by the way, had every right not to become man, not to die for sinners, but he chose to. He chose to. He gave what rightfully belonged to him. It was his to give, and he did give it, so that you and I could be saved. And so this is how that gets lived out 
in the life of the church here. What we own, we're, we're not to leverage to maximize our personal happiness and comfort and security. That's not what it's there for. We're to think, what, where can these resources be best put to use, not just for me, but for the people of God, for the body of Christ, for the kingdom of God? How, should, how we treat our property, how we treat our stuff, should match what we say that we believe about the church being truly one. That's not just something we say. It's a living reality. Now, the result of all of this in verse 34 is very striking. Uh, Luke says, there was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. Imagine that, all these thousands of people, and none of them are needy because of this culture of commonality, this sharing, this living out of the oneness of the church. Um, And here we can think back as we did, back when we looked at chapter 2, to Deuteronomy 15. It was a very important passage on this whole concept. In Deuteronomy 15, you may remember, there are these two contrasting or really complementary statements that Moses makes in the space of just a few verses. In verse 4, he says, When you get into the promised land, there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land. There will be no poor among you. But then, just a few verses later, he turns around and he says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. All those things go together. And therefore I command you, he says, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Thinking, well, is that a contradiction? Surely not. Moses knows what he's doing there. This is just a few verses apart. No, what we're to do is we're to hold these two ideas together. They complement one another, two kind of perspectives that together communicate what God is trying to tell his people about life in the land of Canaan. God, what the, the point is, God is going to bless Israel in the land to such an extent that nobody in that land is going to have to, be, to endure the crushing burden of destitution. It's not going to happen. That doesn't mean that everybody in Israel, though, is going to have equal amounts of everything. It's not what he's promising. No, there's, there are always going to be people who have more, people who have less, including people who have great needs. But you see, what, what he's saying is God has a plan in place to provide for those people with great needs so that they do not stay in poverty, so that they are not crushed by destitution. And the point that Moses is saying is, guess what? That plan is you, people of God. God has designed the covenant community so that the unique uh, material blessings that he gives to some create the opportunity then for the whole community to experience God's blessing through um, the open-handed, self-giving generosity that we've been talking about by those who have the means. And that's, that is what's getting lived out here in Acts. This is not some brand new concept. And that's important. Sometimes people treat this as though, wow, this is something brand new that nobody ever thought of before, this new way of living, this uh, uh, community of goods. Uh, What a remarkable innovation for the New Testament church. No. The The Jerusalem church is simply living out its identity as true Israel. This is an ancient idea. They're living out their identity as the true covenant community. Israel as it was supposed to be, as we've seen so many times in the early chapters of Acts, but now fulfilled in the community of Christ. So as chapter 4 concludes, Luke 
begins to turn the corner then to the next episode by giving us um, a little more detail about what this looked like practically in the church. How was this sharing um, taking place? How was it being put into practice? And he he zooms in on this particular way that um, certain wealthier landed people were selling some of their property and they were bringing the proceeds and laying it at the apostles' feet. He's setting up for chapter 5, where this goes terribly wrong. But first, he takes this opportunity to introduce a a new character who's going to come up again later in the book, uh, Barnabas, who is one of these generous people, who uh, gives one of these gifts. And so, I see, okay, here's an example of what this looks like in a good way. Barnabas um, then is going to serve as a contrast with Ananias and Sapphira, at the beginning of chapter 5, and so we're going to turn to their story now. If Barnabas and others like him were characterized by that open-handed, Christ-like, self-giving generosity we've been talking about, Ananias and Sapphira are characterized by the opposite. They are characterized by what we're calling a selfish hypocrisy. Selfish hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? You may remember hypocrisy comes from the uh, root words uh, that we shared with them, the, the masks that Greek actors would wear. It's wearing a mask to look one way where there's something different underneath. Hypocrisy is basically deceptive. It's showing one face to other people when what is really in your heart, what's really in your secret life is something very different. That's hypocrisy. See, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to show a face to their community that looked all generous and sacrificial. They wanted to be seen that way. They wanted people to think of them the same way people thought of Barnabas. What a great reputation he has. Everybody loves Barnabas. People call him the son of encouragement. Why can't I have a nickname like that? Okay, well, so what do we need to do? Well, what we need to do is we need to try and look like Barnabas. Not be like Barnabas. We We just need to look like him. And maybe people will start thinking about us, talking about us, treating us respecting us the same way they talk about him and love him. This is something we all have to watch out for in the church. You've got to ask yourself, what do you really care more about? How you look or who you are? What people see or, or what's actually real about your heart and your actions? Earlier I said that what Ananias and Sapphira do here, selling their piece of property, pretending to give all the money away when actually they're keeping part of it back. This whole scene is, is reminiscent of what Achan does after the Battle of Jericho in Joshua 7. Um, the first four chapters of Acts are kind of like those first six chapters of Joshua. God's people are doing what they're supposed to do. And God is blessing them, and God is helping them, and they're having success after success. They're being strong and courageous like Joshua. But then all of a sudden, like in Joshua, sin rears its ugly head and causes great tragedy among them, as sin always does. And the sin itself is very similar in both cases. It is greed that leads to deceit. And in both cases, the sin is hidden. And in both cases, the sin is supernaturally revealed by God, who sees everything. God, who loves his church too much, uh, just to let that sin fester or get swept under the rug. Be sure 
Numbers 32:23 says. Be sure your sin will find you out. And just as the Lord reveals the truth to Joshua, in Joshua 7, um, in the same way, Peter, through the Holy Spirit, is able to see right through Ananias' hypocrisy. He knows what's really happened. And he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And that's significant because it's not just the native sinfulness of Ananias' heart that's tempted him here. It's not just the downward drag of living in a greedy world. It is the malice of the devil that has been at work here. The great enemy of God's people trying now to mar God's new creation in the church as he marred God's first creation in the garden. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God, Peter says. It reminds me of what David says in Psalm 51. He'd sinned against a lot of people, David had. But then when he goes to confess his sin in that psalm, he prays against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, whenever we sin, no matter the sin, the primary offended party is always the Lord. We need to get a sense of the gravity of that. Maybe it doesn't bother us all that much, maybe to hurt another person with our words or or to gain somebody's good opinion under kind of false or mixed pretenses. How bad can it really be? And I'm not hurting anybody very badly. I'm, I mean, Ananias might have thought that. Think of the self-justifying thoughts going through his mind. You know, I'm not really hurting anybody. In fact, I'm actually doing something good here. I didn't have to give any of this, but this is pretty good that I'm giving some of this money. But of course, he's forgetting that very basic principle R.C. Sproul liked to talk about so much, that Latin phrase, corum deo, which means before the face of God. That's how we live our entire lives, before the face of God. The Lord knows all. The Lord sees all, all the time. Nothing can be hidden from his sight. And even if we can take in everybody else with our act of outward holiness, and everybody thinks we're just the bee's knees, everything your heavenly Father sees in secret. Jesus says that. He knows what's behind closed doors. He knows what's in the innermost recesses of your heart. There is nothing hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And when you deceive, when you let hypocrisy take hold, when you become comfortable with giving one face to the people around you, when you know the reality in your heart is very different, you're not just lying to other people. You are lying to him. But what could be more foolhardy than that? What could be more self-destructive than that? When you know that the Lord has never taken in for a moment. I mentioned earlier that Peter's statement here confirms that there was no um, abolition of private property in the church. The the sharing in common of their goods was done voluntarily as people uh, chose generosity because the Holy Spirit working in their hearts to give was working in their hearts to give expression to their unity as brothers and sisters. So Peter says to Ananias, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? That's an important point for understanding what's going on at the end of chapter 4. 
And that brings us then to the final section of this passage, which we're calling the church's purity. The church's purity. When pastors and elders and deacons in um, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church get ordained, they have to promise to seek three things. The peace, the unity, and the purity of the church. That's a historic and uh, important phrase um, or set of ideas because a lot of the problems in the church come when we, either, when we misunderstand those three things and then by misunderstanding them, we get them all out of, all out of balance. <clears throat> um, it is possible in our desire for the unity and the peace of the church to start to waffle on the purity of the church, holiness of the church, to compromise and sacrifice the truth and what's really right in the eyes of God for the sake of keeping people happy, keeping people together, helping us get along with each other. Of course, it cuts the other way, too. Uh, sometimes people, in the name of the purity of the church, um, in fact, do, in fact, violate its peace and its unity in ways that they ought not. And sometimes it's, it's hard to tell the difference and to know the right thing to do when we feel the purity of the church is at stake. And we have to plead with God for wisdom uh, to help us to pursue all three of those things together as kind of a, a braided cord so that one strand doesn't become separated from the others and compromise the whole thing. But what I want to impress... So, so all, all that to say, it is possible to be come wrongly zealous for a distorted understanding of the purity of the church in a way that violates its unity and peace. But what I want to impress on you from this passage is God's zeal for the purity of the church. Here in these foundational early days after Pentecost, the Lord has been laying the foundation uh, for the church's whole future. And so far, the church hasn't had to deal yet with serious public sin in its midst, but now they do. Now they do, and we're watching to see, well, how is the church going to deal with this, and how is God going to deal with this serious sin in the church? And you might think, well, well, maybe now that it's after Pentecost, now that it's after Jesus has come, maybe God will just let this slide, because um, the, the God of the Old Testament, of course, that's the God of, of anger and law and judgment, right? That's what people will say. Um, but the New Testament God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. Of course, that represents a terrible misunderstanding of the Old Testament and the New. Let me simply say that Acts 5 demonstrates God in the New Testament is equally concerned about holiness as ever, about the purity of his people. In fact, if anything, the urgency of the need for holiness among the people of God is greater now than ever after Pentecost. Now that the Holy Spirit is dwelling among God's people in such a free and full and abundant way, poured out upon us the Holy Spirit of Christ. And so this supernatural judgment on Ananias and Sapphira goes to show that the principle remains in effect. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Yes, that's found in Leviticus. And so, does that mean we dismiss it? No. It's reinforced here 
in practice by the Lord himself. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's significant, though, significant to see that Peter does not execute Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, The Lord does that directly. Uh, Christ has not given the church um, the power of the sword. Uh, He has not called us to protect the church's purity in the same way that, for instance, Israel's kings were to do before Christ came, when the church and the state were, back then, one and the same thing. Um, later in the New Testament, there's, as, as the story of the church unfolds, there's going to be more revelation from Christ for the church about what we call church discipline, about how the church does have the duty to remove members from the covenant community when they refuse to repent. Uh, and the church is to do that, not with, by um, force, but simply by declaring God's word, declaring what God's word says to be true. Um, But that ongoing practice in the church continues um, because of what the Lord is confirming in principle here in his judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. The Lord is zealous for the purity of his people. And the death of Ananias and Sapphira here reminds us that the Lord is very, very serious about sin. He is serious about the sin in your heart. He is serious about sin in the church. And we dare not take it lightly. We dare not get in the practice of simply hushing it up and sweeping it under the rug. No, we need to bring it into the light. Verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And so as we close, I think this passage really calls us as a church to humble ourselves before God, to ask him to search us and try us and to see if there be any wicked way in us, any hypocrisy where we are looking one way on the outside, but what's inside simply doesn't match. And it's calling us to take refuge then, to take refuge once again in the cross of Jesus, who gave himself for us, not just so that we might be forgiven, but also so that we might be holy. And calls us then to recommit ourselves to living transparently, with an integrity of heart and life, where heart and life are integrated, right? So that just as we are truly one with each other, so also there will be a oneness between who we are on the outside and who we are on the inside. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would search us and try us and see if there be any wicked way in us, root it out for the good of your people, for our own good, so we would not live with sin covered up in our hearts, that we might bring it into the light, not only so it might be exposed, but so it might be forgiven taken away through your power according to your promise. And Lord, we pray that you would please build in resurrection and in our denomination in the church throughout the world more and more that peace and purity and unity um, that you have taught us and your word to pursue that comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling among us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.